Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's very nice to see you all here. Thank you for coming along to this lunchtime seminar, Work, Time and Stress, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives. This discussion is part of a series of events that are being held to mark UK Disability History Month, which runs from 22nd of November to the 22nd of December. And we're very pleased here at Torch to be hosting this event in collaboration with the University of Oxford's Equality and Diversity Unit. We're joined today by Sally Shuttleworth, Professor of English Literature here at Oxford, and Dr. Marie Tidbull, a Knowledge Exchange Fellow here at Torch. Professor Shuttleworth will look at discussions of stress and overwork in education and professional life in the Victorian era based on her research. And Dr. Tidbull will talk about the dynamic nature of disability and the impact that stress, uh, stresses of modern life can have on trajectories, employment, and what people sometimes refer to as disability time. Some of you may know me already, although as the term goes by, I have to say that less and less. Um, my name is Philip Bullock, and I'm the newly appointed director of Torch. And it's a great pleasure to be able to be here to introduce this event. Today's event is also part of Torch's annual headline series, Humanities and Identities. It's a series that focuses on multiple research areas relating to issues of inclusivity around disability, race, gender, sexuality, poverty, class, religion and inequality. And we do and will continue to bring together researchers, practitioners, policy makers, creative thinkers and the wider communities interested in forms of identity, past, present and future. And you can find more about this series and more about Torch in general by going to our website and also picking up our leaflets on the side there. So to introduce our speakers properly and more fully. Sally Shuttleworth is Professor of English Literature here at the University of Oxford and before that was Head of Humanities. She publishes extensively on the relationship between science and literature, most recently including a book, The Mind of the Child, Child Development in Literature, Science and Medicine, 1840 to 1900. She is currently running two very large research projects, Diseases of Modern Life, 19th Century Perspectives, and Constructing Scientific Communities, Citizen Science in the 19th and 21st Centuries. Marie Tidball read jurisprudence at Wadham College, my own college, I've put a plug in for that, it's nice to when Wadham and Torch can come together in so many fruitful ways, after which she went on to complete a year-long journalism traineeship at Channel 4 News. Marie then returned to Wadham to study for an MSc in Criminology and Criminal Justice. Her dissertation on the use of antisocial behaviour orders for adults with autism led to work as policy and legal advisor at Autism West Midlands, where she produced responses to national and local government consultations. Building on this work, Marie recently completed her doctoral thesis at the Centre for Criminology here at the University of Oxford on the governance of defendants with autism in the English criminal justice system. Alongside other Wadham graduates, she established the Let's Get Disability on the List campaign in 2013 and was awarded the Oxford University's Student Union Outstanding Individual Contribution to University Life Award in 2015 for her work in raising the profile of disability at the university. Marie also sits on a number of charitable bodies, including as a trustee for the autism and learning disability charity Waymarks, and she is currently a knowledge a Torch Knowledge Exchange Fellow. So thank you to both our speakers for their contributions and I hand the discussion over to them. Thank you. 
thank you to Philip for that introduction. And uh, the uh, talk I'm going to give today is very much linked up with the ERC project I'm running on diseases of modern life, 19th century perspectives, which looks at the ways in which the people in the 19th century thought that they were stress, uh, suffering from stress and strain of too much work um, and pressures on time. Today I'm going, particularly going to focus on the ways in which the cultural, social and material conditions of the 19th century created health problems, both for those in education and those in the workplace. But I'll start by looking at today. So this is a fairly recent headline in one of our newspapers, Teachers Demand Inquiry into the Epidemic of Anxiety in the Classroom. And I'm sure you're very familiar with these debates, the worries that we are pressing our children too much. There's lots of other headlines about uh, our children being the most over-examined in the world um, and the sense that what are we doing to our young? Um, another uh, headline here, why are children so happy, unhappy? Now teachers join the chorus of concern over pupils. So a sense that it's not merely parents, but it's also teachers asking what is happening in our education system and what, what are we doing to the young. And obviously we're in university setting uh, uh, here and uh, I'm aware that mental health and the pressures uh, of uh, undergraduate study are also a huge uh, issue of concern at the moment. So it's in the light of the, uh, those um, concerns today that I'm going to turn to think about the 19th century. And I start with a concept of brain forcing, which was an idea that came uh, up around the 1850s. Um, and one of the first um, medical productions uh, in this line was this wonderful article by Robert Brudenell Carter on the artificial production of stupidity in schools. <laughs> uh, and what he really meant was that the form of education was completely unfitted for developing the young that the, it's the, the critique of the cramming, the sense of information at the cost of all, no concern about the individual student. So a lot of the issues that we have now um, were uh, produced by Carter in, in the 1850s. And then the next one's title of a book, uh, again by another medic, in the 1880s, um, with a wonderful title, I think, Hurry, Worry and Money, the Bane of Modern Education, which I think you could republish now and it would virtually be identical concerns. Um, and why is money in there? Money is in there because in the 1880s they produced the appalling system of payment by results. The idea that teachers only got the amount of money um, related to how many pupils they got through the tests. And I note that academy schools and others are introducing this at the moment as well in Britain um, and that you know, whether you get a pay rise or not is dependent on whether your, your pupils have actually got uh, the requisite grades. So a sense that we are really going backwards. But to their credit, the Victorians were very, very concerned about all these developments. In the 1880s in particular, you get a huge movement um, concerned about what they termed overpressure in schools. Um, with all sorts of campaigns um, and led by teachers, um, medics and a whole um, array of people. So I turn to this rather wonderful petition. 
It was published in the 19th century, which was one of the dominant periodicals of the time. And as you can see, it was entitled The Sacrifice of Education to Examination. That we, the undersigned, wish to record our strong protest against the dangerous mental pressure and misdirection of energies and aims which are to be found in nearly all parts of our present educational system. And they talk about it moving from the very first um, <coughs> levels of education right through to university. And 380 people had signed this petition, all with their names printed in the, uh, in the periodical. And what I think is rather wonderful about this is they got people from all, um, not all walks of life, but all the recognised um, professional arenas. So you had lords from the House of Lords, lots of MPs, you had writers, Reverend Dodgson, who you might recognise as uh, Lewis Carroll, um, eminent doctors and scientists, cultural figures such as the artist Burne Jones or Arthur Sullivan, half of Gil Gilbert and Sullivan. So an extraordinary array of, of figures. Um, and it seemed to me so rather wonderful that you get this coming together of people from such different eras of society. So you get the medics and the teachers combining in saying that this will not do, that we are really damaging our young uh, with these forms of education. I should say that the obsession with um, the examination was because from the 1850s they had produced um, forms of entrance examination for the civil service and then it spread into all sorts of other areas. And with that you then got the development of crammers, um, the equivalent of our private tutors where you had, uh, everyone had to hire a crammer in order to uh, get their children through the, um, the exams. So, in a way, this sounds all very benign, but there were people who objected. Why did they do so, and who were they? Mostly, interestingly, women. And the reason that women were objecting, and so figures like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and the first women doctors, for example, um, were objected, as did leading female educationists. And the reason is because this argument about um, not cramming the, the head of the young um, also linked up um, not necessarily explicitly, but very, very um, strongly uh, underneath the rhetoric, um, with arguments that women were not fitted for higher education. So it's the same sort of argument that if you cram too much, you damage health. And so the argument then went, and so given that women are mostly here for reproduction, therefore we should not force their brains um, too hard. And so all the people objecting to this protest against examination were actually eminent women who argued that there really there was no problem at all as long as you took care. Um, and the, the, the main problem, many of them said, was actually idleness, not overpressure and uh, an examination. There were many, many accounts uh, which are quite moving of what was happening to the young. So accounts of children as young as 10 coming back from school with these sort of huge heaps of books and staying up until midnight. Or as a, a wonderful account of, the, of what was called the wreck of a wrangler. That's the person who comes top in maths in Cambridge, stretched out on his father's sofa, sort of destroyed by the, the pressures of the university exams. 
Um, there were various studies done of schools, and it was found that schools were using what were supposedly break times in order to force more education in. Um, and again, I think there's parallels here that they were cutting the, um, the times for sport, for uh, other forms of activity, in order to cram for the exams, both within school hours and outside them. Uh, you all, I also found um, descriptions by head of law and city firms declaring that they would never employ anybody who got a first um, because that would mean that their energies had all been used up um, and uh, so they'd much rather have someone who came out with a lowly degree but still to preserve their energies. So you can see so quite interesting the ways that these arguments go. Um, you also find these ideas in fiction, if any of you know um, Dickens' wonderful novel of 1848, Dombey and Son, uh, where little Paul Dombey is sent to the dreadful forcing academy of Dr. Blimber, uh, where it sort of talks about the ways in which they just crammed, and so um, that the um, school is described as a great hothouse where mental green peas were produced at Christmas and intellectual asparagus all the year round. <laughs> um, and this was constantly quoted in the medical text and became almost a founding medical uh, case study of the problems. But interestingly, Dickens points out that the, the parents are even worse than the schools. So the poor kids in the academy are terrified of going home because the parents are actually going to pile yet more work on them when they get home. So a sense that it isn't merely the schools that are at fault, but also these over-ambitious parents. However, these arguments weren't merely linked to education. They were also um, directly applied to the field of work. And to explain how this happened... Um, this uh, really is the sort of founding paragraph, in a sense, of our project. Um, it's from the medic James Crichton Brown of 1860. He says, We live in an age of electricity, of railways, of gas, and of velocity in thought and action. In the course of one brief month, more impressions are conveyed to our brains than those that reached those of our ancestors in the course of years. And our mentalising machines are called upon for a greater amount of fabric than was required of our grandfathers in the course of a lifetime. So what he's captured there in this sense of the velocity of thought and action, obviously you have the velocity of travel with the opening up of the railways so that now people who normally would not have um, strayed more than a few miles away from their home are charging around both country and continent um, at high speed. But also um, they singled out the, the press and the huge amount of information that was pouring out. Um, so this suggestion that the brain is just not fitted to cope, to cope with the extraordinary amount of information and also the, the demands of the new forms of business life. Interestingly, they singled out professional life as the area where all these problems congregated. So the arguments were that teachers, lawyers, doctors, all the professional cl classes, interestingly, even including the clergy, um, were suffering um, from overpressure, long hours, um, and um, just insistent um, modes of work um, were destroying the brains of the professional classes, they thought, and particularly commercial men and um, financiers. I'll read you a quotation from this. 
So this is uh, um, another medic um, on mental strain and overwork. So there's vision of what happens to the poor speculator once the telegram comes in. So we think of the internet as being the, the first thing that introduced us to global finance. But of course, the introduction of the telegraph in the 19th century meant that suddenly you were being bombarded with telegrams at all times um, from the world. So it suggests speculations of an extensive character, risks out of all proportion to the means of the command of the venturer, undertakings whose successful issue hangs upon the good faith of distant governments of unstable character, overtrading, stock exchange gambling, all these constitute a web of inextricable complexity surrounding the enterprising commercial man of the day and rendering his life one of constant excitement. Telegram arriving at all hours with fluctuating quotations and producing rapid alternations of hope and fear must preclude all possibility of mental repose during the pauses of any legitimate business in which the speculator may be engaged. In men whose nervous systems have been overwrought through the exhaustion brought about by this modern lust of wealth, the symptoms of mental strain commonly appear with alarming rapidity. So you can recognise, I think, here some of the, uh, the factors that you see with our current bankers. Um, not that one wishes to um, sort of plead, um, particularly for bankers, but a, a sense that was a recognition that they were at the, the cutting edge of these new pressures. What also happened uh, at this time was that they invented a new category of worker, and that was the brain worker, um, in parallel with the hand worker or the labourer. It followed the discovery that the brain was what they termed the organ of the mind, and that like other organs, the brain consumed energy. And so you have then this sense that if you push yourself too hard, you overextend on your energy. And interestingly, a lot of the metaphors for how the mind was functioning were drawn from banking. So here is an article from the Sanitary Record. They, they, you get these sorts of articles right across the, the press, the, uh, uh, in public health, in, um, in medical records. Um, so this is from a physician. But overwork and physiological bankruptcy is the new concept. It says, overwork is indeed one of the most serious outcomes of the pace at which we live and the struggles which we make, first to secure a living and then to accumulate a, a fortune. At no period of time was there such a high pressure existence as now exists. Um, and he summarises some of um, his arguments. That man has a reserve of force, like the balance of a prudent firm at its bankers. If it is too far drawn upon, a sudden demand becomes a very serious matter. And then stimulants, because uh, they were deeply concerned that um, the professional classes were actually resorting to both morphine and brandy and other stimulants whilst they were at work. So stimulants, though great means, are not absolutely essential to attain physiological bankruptcy, but clearly it helps. And then what they termed living fast, living means living beyond the physiological income and induces early exhaustion of the forces capital. You see this really sort of determined working out of the um, banking metaphor. And then, so, so what do you do about it? Suggestions that loans of force may be repaid by economy, by quietude and sleep. So basically, so don't push yourself so hard and get, go to bed early, um, seems to be the sense. So were there any um, positive developments in relation to all this? One of them was, I think, that there was the recognition that overwork was actually a legitimate medical category. 
I've been looking at um, people who go to spas and uh, other forms of health resort to recover. And interestingly, they start their memoirs by saying, sort of, my system shattered by six months of heavy work. I, uh, sort of, um, and it was seen as perfectly legitimate to go off, not merely for a week or two to recover your forces, but for six months or even two or three years, which um, I, I think we should reintroduce. Um, yes, uh, but what were the limitations, really, of this way of thinking about the mind and body? Clearly, it was only focused on the middle classes. There were some concerns for those uh, um, <coughs> with, um, with <coughs> working conditions and exhaustions for, for the manual labours and emerging concerns for those with physical disabilities. But it was largely focused on the diseases of what they called the professions. And as I've noted, it was also problematic in relation to education, both for women and for the working classes. What I've tried to sketch, however, is the bewilderment of a culture trying to cope with rapidly shifting social and work conditions and trying to make sense of the new pressures they felt themselves under. We worry about the new pressures of too much information and the speed of transactions required of us in the internet age. I would suggest the Victorians, with the coming of industrialisation and the development of rapid train travel and international communication by telegram and later telephone, experienced an equally bewildering shock to the system, with significant consequences for both mental and bodily health. Thank you. No, that was um, really excellent. Um, so I suppose my talk is very much uh, focused on uh, the modern perspective, um, kind of drawing on the social model of disability. So without much further ado, I'll, I'll, I'll begin. The radio burbles. I attempt the unfailing of my limbs, but they are unresponsive. My stump has a dull throb. My calf and thighs are twitching incessantly. My spine and back... The strong scaffolding of my frame lie like a collapsed matchstick house. I breathe and coax my body to move towards the edge of the bed and place my one and only foot on the soft carpeted floor. I lean across to scroll down the screen of my smartphone. Emails flood my inbox. My single finger, alone, will seek out each individual letter key to type a reply later. For now, my stump feels around for the discarded detritus of my prosthesis so I can walk to the bathroom. The sodden socks, drenched from the day's previous limbwear, will need to be changed. Three clean ones are procured. My two fingers, together, will open up the off-white socks and pull them up my stump, smoothing out the wrinkles. Then the inner socket, heaved on. Finally, my own limb is shunted into the realistic carcass of the prosthesis. Then... Then to find the energy tucked away somewhere to get dressed. This banal episode, this is how each day begins. Sometimes this activity, one of the many additional activities of everyday living with a disability, is overwhelming. Overshadowing the day's important meetings, writing and conversations with annoying sense of exhaustion. Others, it is but a sneeze. Disability time, the experience of the body in space and these additional activities of daily living, distorts temporal experiences. 
They also impact on the availability of usable working time and task completion speed in the strictures of the traditional nine-to-five working day. In understanding the impact of stress and overload of 24-hour digital connectivity and email on the lives of people with disabilities in an information age, it is imperative to understand the dynamic aspect of disability and how its trajectories affect our social inclusion and the fulfilment of our potential in modern society. The social model of disability's distinction between impairment, a condition of the mind or body, and disablement, a form of disadvantage or restriction of activity caused by the failure to take account of impairment is the premise upon which much of disability studies is based. Such failure leads to barriers to participation in mainstream social activities which are imposed on top of impairment. Acknowledging the reality of impairment enables an analysis of the dynamic aspects of disability Burkhart notes that disability in general is still only understood in its static sense. Yet, as noted above, disability is not fixed in nature. Research needs to distinguish between disability trajectories, avoiding the conflation of different experiences of being disabled and improving the design and evaluation of effective policies. Where medical model research does acknowledge these fluctuations, the dynamics of disability from a social policy perspective often remain um, underexplored. Proponents of the strong social model of disability, such as Barnes, severed this link to turn attention away from the personal tragedy model of impairment to the public problems of disablism. But disabled feminists, um, specifically French, Crow and Morris, argue that excluding analysis of impairment ignores the reality of impairment effects such as pain and tiredness, which I just described in my um, daily episode, which are intrinsically disabling. It also leaves a theoretical vacuum which decontextualises the lived experience of disability, failing to recognise impairments or embodied experience shaped by culture. Therefore, Thomas calls for a more dialectical analysis of impairment and disabilism, because in any real social setting, impairment and disabilism are thoroughly intermeshed with the social conditions that bring them into being. This enables an exploration of the social, political, cultural and economic factors that define disability and shape personal and collective responses to difference and attempts to redress the power imbalance empowering disabled people as citizens with rights. The impairment disability dyad of the social model shifts analysis away from individual weakness towards, as Baudry et al. describe, an iterative process of identifying, understanding and removing obstacles to resources. This enables an analysis of the dynamic aspects of disability in research by taking a longitudinal view of the intermittent or fluctuating nature of disability, especially mental illness, which Burkhardt argues are significantly undercounted in cross-sectional measures. So by highlighting the distinction between impairment and disablement, the social model allows for a more nuanced understanding of the fact that, as Baldry et al. note, the combination of stressful life events is also likely to be linked to the episodic occurrences of impairment in both a causative and a consequential sense. O'Grady et al. argue that different elements of exclusion interact to increase barriers for people with disabilities and perpetuate exclusion, leading to a spiralling of justiciable problems such as debt, 
difficulties with housing and welfare benefits. They can have an additive effect, compounded by barriers to seeking help from professionals organi professional organisations. This is why Burkhardt emphasises the need to view disability dynamically in order to permit analysis of the different processes by which disabled people become socially excluded. Such a perspective enables the identification of key points in the key points in the trajectories individuals follow, supporting more precisely targeted interventions, for example, through the transition to adulthood for those who become disabled in childhood. This is also true of the transition through career milestones as students move from their sixth form studies to university and throughout their undergraduate and graduate career pathways. This is writ large in the recent Equality and Human Rights Commission research report uh, on the disability pay gap. Um, they found that the lower levels of education or reduced ability to work continuously on a full-time basis can have a negative impact on pay. Research consistently finds that disabled people are less likely to be in employment than non-disabled people, and when employed, they receive, on average, lower pay. The overall employee rate, um, which is the percentage of the population aged 16 to 64 in paid jobs, that is, um, as employees, of disabled people was about 35% in 2014, both um, amongst disabled men and women. Among non-disabled people, it was around 63% and 57% for women. The extent to which a disability affects daily activities and work also has a bearing on the size of the pay gap. Those with an activity and work-limiting disability tend to experience large pay gaps, hence my emphasis on that dynamic nature of disability and the day-to-day um, -day activities which are imposed on top of a normal working life. If different groups following different trajectories within the disabled population are not differentiated, the disadvantaged disabled people encounter will be underestimated, as Burkhardt says. Thus, understanding both the opportunities and indeed the stresses of an overload of information and the speed of global networks must reflect on the dynamic nature of people's individual experience of impairment. So whilst technological innovations have been characterised as creating conditions that level the playing field, um, what Foley and Ferry describe as breaking down barriers and serve as a universal equaliser for individuals who experience marginalisation and is indeed sometimes mythologised as creating conditions where disability would simply fade away or become a largely inconsequential difference. However, for me personally, I have found assimilating the use of voice dictation software across my various electronic devices in order to more quickly answer email deeply problematic. I attend many meetings across my working day, which means using this is also impractical in my own working environment. I therefore find the constant stream of emails exhausting. For me, the almost entire shift to text-based communication in our information age is frustrating. In truth, I prefer to be able to respond by the telephone, because using my voice to communicate saves my energy and mitigates my own physical pain. My own story may be anecdotal, but Garbaroglio and Dixon et al. undertook research with deaf young adults on whether communication technology is a predictor of future attainments. Following their secondary analysis using the National Longitudinal Transition Study 2, 
um, they, uh, which allows for a longitudinal examination of deaf individuals' experiences and the transition from adolescence to adulthood. They found that deaf individuals who engage with computer-mediated communication at higher frequencies during their adolescence did not reveal discernible gains in adult life attainments in any domain. As such, they propose that the benefits of communication technology only go so far, and that achieving greater equitable outcomes um, for deaf individuals requires larger systemic change. Again, a reason that we must look at the dynamic between the impairment strand of the social model distinction and the disablement strand. Um, indeed, the opportunities for increased inclusion of different groups will vary across dig disability um, and digital platforms and the way those platforms intersect with each other. Research by Scott and Ari almost a decade ago explored how expanding public access to the internet further catalyzed the growth of the autistic self-advocacy community. They described how internet communication technologies had liberated people with autism from the constraints of in-person communication, which can be highly fatiguing and sometimes overwhelming for them. Sinclair found that internet-based communication also enabled people with autism to develop their own autism-run communities on email lists, forums, and other online platforms where they could often express themselves more easily than in person. Scott and Ari emphasised how in the last decade, autistic-run online communities have matured into a broader, diverse melange of autistic-run websites, forums, email lists, and gatherings on interactive platforms. Therefore, the impact of the information age will be diffuse and variable across different impairments and the individuals who live with those impairments. It will also be dynamic across their life course as there is a shift from a focus on assistive to accessible information technology. Fundamental in the development of this information age and its integration into the educational and employment environment is the need to follow the central tenet of the disability rights movement nothing about us without us. As ever, our inclusion will innovate excellence in modern society and so within our academy. Thank you.